I want to thank our worship team for just a great job this morning in both services, doing all that special music and leading us in worship. And uh, we just appreciate all your diligence and hard work and preparation to lead us this morning before the throne of God. Several years ago, a man who had murdered two teenage boys was executed in a gas chamber in San Quentin Prison in California. He'd been sentenced to death 14 years earlier, but his lawyers had succeeded in obtaining four stays of execution, the last at 4 a.m. that very morning while he was already strapped into the death chair. When the final appeal failed, the man asked prison officials to make a note of his last words and release them after he died. And so with his final breath, he dictated this poetic line. You can be a king or a street sweeper, but everybody dances with the Grim Reaper. Easter is a celebration of life. But this morning, I want to begin by talking with you about death. Death is something that we don't like to talk about. In fact, we do everything we can to avoid the subject. Our culture has creatively come up with a list of phrases to use when someone dies, so we don't even have to mention the word death. We say things like they've passed away, or they've passed on, or they are no longer with us, or even in an attempt to lighten up the harsh reality of death, we say funny things like, well, they're pushing up daisies, or um, they kicked the bucket, or they bit the dust, or they bought the farm. But witty remarks do nothing to change the fact that we're all going to die someday and there's nothing that any of us can do about it. Even in the age of organ transplants and microsurgery and chemotherapy and intensive uh, care units and wonder drugs and other advances in medical science and technology, all the most gifted physician and most skilled surgeon can do is postpone the inevitable. We're all destined to die. The British pastor evangelist named John Blanchard says it well. He says, quote, death comes to the young and old, rich and poor, good and bad, educated and ignorant, king and commoner. No sex is spared, no age exempt and no color excused. The dynamic young businessman, the glamorous actress, the great athlete, the brilliant scientist, the television personality, the powerful politician, none of them can resist the moment when death will lay its hand upon them and bring all their fame and achievements to nothing. He went on, he said, death is no respecter of time or place. It is neither season nor perish. It can strike at any moment of day or night, on land, on the sea, or in the air. It comes to the hospital bed, the busy road, the comfortable armchair, the sports field, and the office. And there is not a single spot on the face of the planet where it is not able to strike. He says the whole world is a hospital, and every person is a terminal patient. What we call living can be just as accurately called dying. That's a comforting thought this morning. In other words, all of us are dying right now as I speak. And it's only a matter of time until death overtakes us and none of us knows when it will happen or how it will happen. 
The Bible says the man does not know his time of death and that no man has the authority over the day of his death. But the Bible also says that it is appointed for men to die once and then the judgment. All of us have an appointment with death someday and there's nothing we can do to cancel it. J.C. Ryle said it this way. He said it's astonishing that with such an appointment... Any man can be careless and unconcerned. Surely none are more foolish as those who are content to live unprepared to die. I believe the main reason why most people don't like to think about death, let alone talk about it, is because they're not ready for it. And so they just try to forget about it. But it's absolutely foolish for us to spend our entire lives trying to ignore the inevitable. And this Easter service is, I think, a wonderful opportunity for all of us to think about death for a moment and make sure we're ready to die. Make sure we're prepared to die. I often like to ask people if they know for sure where they'll spend eternity after they die. You know what? Not many people know. And frankly, I think they're scared. I think it's safe to say that the majority of people in the world are afraid to die. And it's partly because of the fear of the pain associated with death, but mostly it's the fear of the unknown. Well, this morning, we're going to get a glimpse into the unknown. And I want to draw your attention to one of the most riveting stories that Jesus ever told. It's only found in the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 16. And if you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to turn there. And in this solemn passage, Jesus provides us with an unprecedented opportunity to see what happens to people after they die. It's as if he pulls back the curtains of death and and lets us have a sneak peek into eternity. And we're given a breathtaking preview of the glories of heaven and a heart-stopping preview of the torments of hell. Let me read for you this story. Luke chapter 16, starting in verse 19. Now there was a rich man, and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, joyously living in splendor every day. And a poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate, covered with sores, and longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. Now the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and was buried. In Hades he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your life you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus bad things. But now he is being comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, there is a great chasm fixed, so that those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able, and that none may cross over from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, that you send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, in order that he may warn them, so that they will not also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, 
They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. But he said, no, Father Abraham. But if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you as the author of this text by the inspiration of your spirit. And we ask that you would open up our minds to understand the truth contained in this story. Help us to listen as if this will be the last sermon we'll ever hear and help me to preach as if this is the last sermon I'll ever preach. And as we're allowed to peer into eternity just for a moment. May what we see motivate us to live our lives the way you want us to. And that we would come away changed this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Luke chapter 16 is all about the proper use of money. It starts off in verse 1 with Jesus telling his disciples a parable about an unrighteous steward who shrewdly used his master's money to make friends with people after he'd been fired from his job. That story climaxes in verse 9 where Jesus says to his disciples, Make friends for yourselves by means of the wealth of unrighteousness so that when it fails they will receive you into the eternal dwellings. Jesus was exhorting his disciples to be faithful stewards with the money that God had provided them, and to wisely invest in their future, not here on earth, but in heaven. By helping others, rather than just spending it on themselves. And so in essence, what Jesus was implying here is that how we use our money here on earth determines how we'll spend our eternity. That's a sobering thought, isn't it? Now, this didn't go over real well with the Pharisees. Look at verse 14. Now, the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, were listening to all these things and were scoffing at him. They knew who Jesus was talking about. He was talking about them. Because they were profiting financially under the guise of serving God. Look at verse 13. Jesus said, No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in wealth. And here these Pharisees were trying to do exactly what Jesus said was impossible to do, to serve God and money at the same time. Now you wouldn't have known that from their outward appearance because these religious leaders pretended to be devoted to God. But on the inside, they were really in love with their wealth and their possessions and they loved to wear their nice clothes and they loved to live in their nice houses and the nice parts of towns and to have extravagant parties and, and they invited all the important people over. And ironically, it was their wealth that made them so confident that God was pleased with their lives. And it was their wealth that gave them the false assurance that they would go to heaven when they died. You say, what was up with that? Well, in the Jewish culture, wealth was a sign of God's favor. And so it was assumed that if you were rich, you were obviously being blessed by God for living a righteous life. And if you were poor, you must have done something wrong. And you were obviously under God's curse. And so naturally, the Pharisees would show off their wealth as evidence of their righteousness. Look at us. Obviously, God is blessing us for our righteous lives. 
And Jesus told them that even though people might be impressed with their righteousness and their wealth, God wasn't. Look at verse 15. And he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves in the sight of men, but God knows your what? Hearts. For that which is highly esteemed among men is detestable in the sight of God. In fact, it is so detestable what you are doing that if you continue in your greedy, covetous lifestyle, you're going to end up where? In hell. And I think that's the point of the story he's about to tell them. Jesus wanted them to realize the eternal consequences of being unfaithful stewards who fail to use money to help others but selfishly use it all for themselves. Who don't use as he said earlier, the mammon of unrighteousness, money, to gain friends. Because when you get to eternity, there's going to be no one there to help you out. In other words, what goes around, what? Comes around. Well, from just a service reading of this story, you might conclude that the rich man missed salvation because he wasn't generous enough with his money. But I don't want you to walk away with that impression. I want you to understand that the selfish way that this man used his money was simply an indication of his true spiritual condition, what was in his heart. The real reason his soul was damned to hell was because he had disregarded and disobeyed God's word. And I think the last few verses that lead up to the story in verse 19 hold the key to understanding the true meaning of the story. Look at verse 16. Jesus says, The law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. What's that? The scriptures, right? The Old Testament. So he's talking about the word of God here. Since that time, the gospel of the kingdom of God has been preached, and everyone is forcing his way into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one stroke of a letter of the law to fail. In other words, he's again talking about the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament. And he goes on, he says, everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and he who marries one who is divorced from a husband commits adultery. You say, what's that in there for? Well, that was just a little illustration that Jesus used to expose the Pharisees' view of Scripture. Because while God made it very clear in the Old Testament that a man should not dishonor his wife and abuse his wife by divorcing her, that God hates divorce, they had come up with some other reasons, some excuses, some grounds for divorce. Like if you met somebody prettier, or if she burned your toast in the morning, or other things like that, that you had a right to divorce your wife. And so that was just a, a sticking point for Jesus, that, that the Pharisees made such a big deal about keeping the law while the whole time they were breaking it. And the bottom line was they, they merely patronized the Bible. And they paid lip service to it. And they distorted it and disobeyed it. And so the main point, I believe, of this story is not so much about what you do with your money as what you do with the Word of God. That's the issue. And ultimately, it's what you do with the Bible that determines where you spend eternity. But with that background in mind, let's look at the story. It's a story of the lives and eternities of two men, a rich man and a poor man. Let's look first of all at two men in time, two men 
in time. Verse 19. Now there was a rich man, and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, joyously living in splendor every day. So Jesus begins the story by describing this flamboyant fellow who was in the habit of wearing very expensive clothes, the, the kind worn by kings and princes, the purple color reserved for royalty. I mean, this guy even had fancy underwear. That's the fine linen thing. I mean, every meal was a gourmet feast and he denied himself no pleasure. He had everything his heart could possibly want. Ease and comfort were all he ever knew. He wallowed in extravagance. He lived in the lap of luxury. In fact, I think if Robin Leach was alive at that time, he would have interviewed him for the lifestyles of the rich and famous. He was the envy of all his neighbors and friends and his life was one big party. Notice, every day of his life. Some of us may be able to Experience a day like this every once in a while where we pull out the nice suit or the nice outfit, kind of our, our best duds, and we go out to a nice restaurant and pay top dollar for a steak or lobster, and we have a nice dinner, but we can't do that every day. can't afford to do that every day. That's once in a, a great while. But this guy, every day, he was living large. I think it's important to notice something here that, that Jesus never accused this guy of any huge, heinous sin or, or, or open hostility towards God and His Word. I mean, there's no indication that he was ever mean to Lazarus, this guy who was sitting out the front gate of his mansion. I mean, he didn't have him removed. He could have had him hauled off. He didn't kick him every time he walked out of the gate to go to wherever he went. The issue is not what he did do, but what he didn't do. And the fact that he's never did anything to help Lazarus, even though he had the means to. I mean, he simply lived his life for himself. And he wouldn't have lived that way if he truly loved God and his neighbor, right? The two greatest commandments, thou shalt love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And a selfish lifestyle proved that he really didn't love God or his neighbor. He didn't love anybody but himself, 1 John 3.17 says, But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? In other words, don't tell me you love God if, if you have the world's goods and you see someone in need and you don't help. Well, that was the rich man. Let's, let's look at the poor man. Verse 20. And a poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate, covered with sores, and longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. That's pleasant. The first thing I want you to know about this poor man is that he's the only character in any of Jesus' parables that is given a name. And some commentators speculate that this is an indication that this wasn't just a story that Jesus made up, but this was an actual historical account, an incident that ha actually happened. Well, it really doesn't matter how you interpret it because it all comes out the same in the end. The truth is the same. But here's this man, Lazarus. He, he had no money. He dressed in rags. He, his emaciated body was covered with open sores from head to toe. He was too crippled to walk himself, and he had to be carried around by others, and they would just plop him down every day outside the front gate of the rich man's mansion where he hoped to beg a few scraps from one of his daily banquets. 
And if things weren't bad enough, he had to constantly ward off the pesty dogs who were trying to make a meal of him. And yet, will you notice that despite his difficult lot in life, we never see or hear Lazarus complain or blame God? Apparently, he feared God and trusted him to take care of him. In fact, his name, Lazarus, you know what it means? God is my help. He was a living example of his own name. Now remember, in the minds of the Pharisees, riches were the proof of divine approval and blessing, right? And so they would have naturally, as they heard this story, assumed that this rich guy, man, he was a shoe in for heaven, wasn't he? And they surely would have been repulsed by the despicable description that, that Jesus gave of this man, Lazarus, and been convinced that he was worthy of nothing but divine judgment. Now this guy deserved what was coming to him. Look at verse 22. It says, Now the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom, and the rich man also died and was buried. Again, beloved, death is no respecter of persons. They both died. Didn't matter if, doesn't matter if you're rich or poor, you're, you're still going to die. Nothing is said about Lazarus' burial. His body was most likely dragged outside the gates of Jerusalem and thrown on the trash pile to be burned. That's what they did with just the, the trash and the, the discarded people. They just throw them out there in the, the Valley of Gehenna and just kind of let it burn. But his soul went to heaven. The rich man, on the other hand, no doubt had an elaborate funeral that was attended by all the important people in the city and Probably had paid high dollar for all these professional mourners and these ladies to weep and to wail for him. He was embalmed probably in this lavish tomb, but his soul went to hell. I like the creative way that Chuck Swindoll describes the scene. He said, quote, as the two men's souls passed through death's portal, an amazing reversal occurred. Angelic pallbearers bore Lazarus' soul to paradise while the rich man's soul was unceremoniously pitched into the fires of hell. I mean, talk about a total role reversal here. I mean, Lazarus, he was given a place of honor in heaven, reclining at a banquet next to none other than Abraham himself. I mean, it doesn't get any better than that, does it? And in stark contrast, the rich man found himself all alone in hell with nothing but his tormented conscience. And I think he was a living, breathing example of what Jesus said in Luke 9, 25, for what is a man profited if he gains the whole world and yet loses and forfeits his what? His soul. Friends, our lives will never end. We are eternal creatures who are designed to live forever. God wired us for eternity. We have souls that will never die. Our bodies will die, sure. But our souls will live on throughout all eternity in one of two places, in either heaven or hell. 
That's two men in time. Now let's look at two men in eternity. Verse 23. In Hades, he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your life, you received your good things and likewise Lazarus bad things. But now he's being comforted here and you are agony. And besides all this, between us and you, there is a great chasm fixed so that those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able and that none may cross over from there to us. I mean, do you you see how the tables just have completely turned? I mean, now the rich man is the beggar. And 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 it's as if he's at the gate of, of heaven, as it were, begging Lazarus for a single drop of water to cool off his tongue. He didn't want a scrap. He just wants a a drop of water. But Abraham refused his request. And he simply reminded him that during his lifetime, he had every opportunity to help out Lazarus with, with the portion of the abundance that God had blessed him with. I mean, come on. The, the guy was literally lying at your doorstep. How could you have missed that? And yet you chose to use your money for yourself. Lazarus, on the other hand, endured many painful trials during his lifetime, but he remained faithful to God. And now he gets to enjoy the comforts you enjoyed on earth, and you get to experience the agonies that he endured on earth. And besides, there's an uncrossable chasm that permanently separates those who are in heaven from those who are in hell. I think we can learn some important truths about hell from these verses. Number one, hell is real. Hell is real. It's not a fairy tale. It's not something that preachers made up just to scare people into living right. I mean, there is an actual, literal, conscious existence after death. This passage proves it. So hell is real. Number two, hell is torture. Hell is torture. Four times the words agony and torment are used to express the indescribable pain and suffering that this rich man experienced in hell. And throughout the Bible, we see hell as referred to as a, as a place of eternal, unquenchable fire where the worm does not die, a lake of fire and brimstone, outer darkness. In other words, it's pitch black where you can't see anything, but you can hear weeping and gnashing of teeth of people all around you who are being tormented night and day forever and ever because of their sin. And I think the worst thing of all will be being terrorized by our own conscience as it haunts us and taunts us regarding all the times that we had an opportunity to repent, but didn't. Including Easter Sunday 2005. So hell is real. Hell is torture. And number three, hell is just. Hell is just. I mean, in essence, what 
he's telling the rich man is, hey, you know what? You're, you're just getting what you deserved. You know, some people like to argue the question, well, uh, how could a loving God ever create a place like hell? I can't accept that. Let alone create people who are going to suffer there for all eternity. Well, I think the first thing we need to understand is that while God is a loving God, He's also a holy God. And He hates sin. And He's bound by His holy character to punish it. And the Bible says that the wages of sin is what? Death. In other words, we we earn death. We deserve to die and go to hell because of our sinful rebellion against God. The second thing we need to realize is that God originally intended hell for who? Satan and his demons, Matthew chapter 25, verse 41. And Satan and his demons refused to worship and glorify God, and they rebelled against him, and Satan said, I'll be like God. And God said, I don't think so. And he cast him out of heaven into hell. And so hell became the place where people go who refuse to glorify and honor God. And you know what? It's totally fair and just for God to shut us out of His glory forever. I mean, He's only giving us what we want. If we we don't care about His glory during our life, it shouldn't matter to us if we're separated from His glory for all eternity. I'm, I'm just giving you what you want. And I think the last thing we need to understand is that God doesn't send anyone to hell. People choose to go to hell. When they choose not to repent, and they choose not to believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. Whenever you see hell talked about in Revelation, for instance, it's always associated with unrepentant and unbelieving people. And so the issue is people choose to go to hell. So hell is real. Hell is torture. Hell is just. And finally, hell is final. Hell is final. And the most awful thing about hell is that there is no way out. There is no escape. There are no second chances. The moment you die, your destiny is sealed forever. And no one can pray you out of it. No one can pay your way out of it. You must stay there and suffer forever and ever. If you don't believe that, look at the response of the rich man in verse 27. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, that you send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers in order that he may warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. I mean, this, the rich man realized that, that there was nothing that Lazarus could do for him to, to relieve his agonizing condition in hell. I mean, he, that's it. He was stuck. And he suddenly became very evangelistic. And he was burdened for his five brothers and he begged Abraham to, to please send Lazarus to warn them so they didn't end up in hell with him. See, the rich man knew his brothers well. They had probably sat around that same table in their father's mansion, right? 
And they were still living the same way that he had. And they would surely suffer the same fate if they didn't repent, if they didn't change the way they were living. You know, the, the fact that the rich man didn't want his brothers to join him in hell, I think blows away that, that, that common misconception that hell's just going to be one big party where we just get to keep doing what we're doing here on earth. Have you ever heard anybody express that thought? I have. I've heard some people in my lifetime say, well, you know, I, I don't think I wouldn't mind going to hell because, you know, I'm just going to party with my friends. Oh, really? That doesn't sound like a party to me. If it was, he'd be inviting all his buddies to join him, right? And he doesn't want anybody else to be there. Believe me, hell is no party. It's a place of eternal pain and torment and loneliness. And if there are people you know there, I don't know that you'll even be able to interact with them. It's the last place you would ever want to be regardless of who else was there with you. It's the one journey that's not made any shorter because of the people that are with you, right? As we say. Look at how Abraham, Abraham responds, verse 29. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And again, that was a reference to Scripture, right? We already looked at that earlier before leading up to this story. This is the Old Testament he's referring to. And, and what Abraham is saying is, is that the Old Testament contained everything the rich man's brothers needed to know in order to avoid ending up in hell. The problem is that they ignored what the Bible said. And the rich man knew it. That they, that they had a problem. If it, if it came down to the word of God, we have a problem. And, and I would venture to say, just based on some of the details of the story, that this rich man and his brothers were good Jewish boys who grew up in a good Jewish home and were going to synagogue on a regular basis. What does he refer to Abraham as? Or who does he refer to Abraham as? Father Abraham? I mean, these guys have heard, had heard the Scriptures taught Sabbath after Sabbath. They knew the Ten Commandments. They probably even had memorized passages from the Torah. And through their exposure to the Bible, they understood that salvation depended on, on repentance, turning away from sin and placing your faith in the Messiah. And that even though they had learned all this stuff, they never done anything about it. They didn't take the Scriptures seriously. They never really listened and never really applied it to the way they lived their lives. And again, the rich man knew it. Because he was experiencing the consequences of doing that. He knew his brothers were just like him. And so in his mind, he's thinking, hey, uh, the word thing, yeah, okay, but we, we need to work to have another plan. And yet, Abraham was unyielding. Notice what he said in verse, well, excuse me, uh, in verse 30. He, he reasoned, this is the, the rich man. He said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He begins to reason with Abraham that, that if he received a visit from, if they had received a visit from a ghost, man, that would change him for sure. I mean, come on, what, it doesn't get more convincing than that than seeing a dead person come back to life. 
And so just imagine for a second the five brothers, okay? Lounging in the family mansion, gorging themselves on, on their fine food and drink, and all of a sudden they hear a knock at the door. One of the brothers gets up from the table, wipes off his mouth, walks over and opens the door, and there's Lazarus, that old beggar that died last week, and, and they dragged him off into the valley of Gehenna. He's here to haunt us. And the rich man was convinced that then they would listen and repent. You know, whether he realized it or not, this rich man's adamant request revealed something that I'm not sure he wanted to reveal, and that was his lack of commitment to the authority and the sufficiency of Scripture. And unfortunately, it seems that more and more churches today are buying into this, the rich man's logic on this deal. And they've been duped into thinking that the Bible is not enough to effectively evangelize people. We have to meet people where they're at, and so let's use this technique or implement this program or show them this video or perform this skit or sing this song or provide them with this casual atmosphere with lattes and cappuccinos. That'll get them. I mean, we can't expect people just to sit there and listen to the Bible and actually apply it to their lives. We need something more effective, more compelling, more attention-grabbing. Then they'll repent and believe. And again, Abraham was unyielding, verse 31. But he said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded, even if someone rises from the dead. In other words, if the, if the Bible is not enough to persuade them to change their lives, then nothing will change them. Not even if some, someone rose from the dead. So what makes us think a skit or an espresso will do that? See, the issue here is not, with, with the unbeliever, is not a lack of evidence, but a lack of obedience. That's the issue. Now, the reason why people don't change their lives is because they don't want to. They don't want to submit to the Bible. And so it wouldn't matter if some guy is resurrected, they would still refuse to repent. Well, not long after this story was told, a man did come back from the dead. His name was Lazarus. Not, not the same one of this story. But you remember Jesus brought Lazarus out from the grave. And do you remember how the religious leaders responded? Oh, isn't this wonderful? This incredible miracle. Yes, we believe you're the Messiah. What did they do? They wanted to kill Lazarus. Kind of destroy the evidence, hide the evidence that Jesus was able to do these kind of things. And ultimately, as we know, Jesus himself rose from the dead and, and these same religious leaders denied it. And they even tried to, to cover it up by paying off the guards who witnessed the resurrection. We read about that earlier, right? In Matthew 28. And so in this final verse here, Jesus was clearly alluding to his resurrection. And how even that miracle wouldn't be enough to persuade people to repent of their sin and place their faith in him as their Lord and Savior. And with this concluding line... Jesus closes the curtains to the afterlife, as it were. 
and we're ushered back into the present. But I trust that we've come away with an invaluable lesson. You say, what's that? That everything we need to know to prepare us for life after death is in the Bible. What we do with what it says will determine our eternal destiny. If we believe it, if we obey it, what it says about turning from our sin and trusting in Christ as our Lord and Savior, we'll spend eternity in heaven. But if we reject or ignore what the Bible says, we will end up in hell alongside this rich man. And for all we know, his five brothers. You might be someone here this morning who's still not convinced of this whole Christianity thing. You're, you're holding out for some more evidence, waiting for more information before you make the decision whether or not to commit your entire life to this person and, and the work of Jesus Christ. Well, I want you to know you're never going to find anything more compelling and convincing than this book right here. You know, it was Jesus himself who points us to the Bible to persuade us to believe in him. In just a, a few chapters later, in Luke chapter 24, after Jesus had died and rose again from the dead, he met up with the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. Remember that? And they were walking along struggling with all that they had heard and about the resurrection and they weren't sure whether to believe it or not and they were slow to accept it that, that he had been resurrected and he shows up and is walking along with them and you know what he could have said? Surprise, it's me! He could have said that, couldn't he? And yet he did. But instead... Luke tells us in Luke 24, verse 27, that beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself and all the scriptures. In other words, Jesus said, it's all right here, guys. It's all right here. And consequently, it wasn't the resurrection that convinced them of the truth of the Bible. But it was the Bible that convinced them of the truth of the resurrection. And that's the way it should be for us. Let's pray. I want to take a moment as we close our service today. To give you an opportunity to repent. And to place your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. You might be sitting there this morning knowing that, that you're an unbeliever. That, that, that you've never truly embraced Jesus Christ for who he said he was in scripture. But you'd like to this morning. Because what you heard today was so compelling. That you know you need to change. 
And so I want to invite you to pray a prayer. Not out loud, just in the quietness of your own heart, in your own mind, which is just an expression to God of what is in your heart this morning. And you can just pray a prayer like this, quietly to the Lord. Dear God, I know that you created me to honor and obey you, but I've rebelled against you and deserve to die and go to hell because of my sin. But I believe that you love me so much that you sent Jesus to die on the cross to pay the penalty for my sin. And that he rose again to prove that you accepted his sacrifice in my place. Please forgive me for my sin and help me to repent and to change the way I live my life. I submit my entire life to Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. And from this day forward, I commit myself to follow him and obey him. Thank you for saving me. In Jesus' name. And God's people said, Amen.